You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2022 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, we want to invite you into our presence. We know that you're here, but we want to recognize it. We want to ask that you would speak to our hearts tonight as you have been all week long. We want to thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today and uh, throughout the remainder of this week, we're going to be talking about emotional health issues that are critical for us to improve upon, particularly as we get closer to the end time scenarios. And tonight, as I'm speaking, the world is in crisis. Murder rates rose higher than ever in the history of this country year over year. And that's the, the latest CDC data. And so murder rates dramatically increasing, although prosecution for murders um, decreasing throughout many of the cities of this country. Over one million deaths now in the United States. We just uh, surpassed that due to COVID, this pandemic that started uh, a little more than two years ago. And of course, we know it's not just COVID killing these individuals, but in 95% of them, it sets them up for death when they get COVID. Um, and it's related to obesity. Interestingly, this is CDC data that I'm quoting from, but you probably didn't hear this from your news networks. The actual, it's actually tied with the leading cause of COVID death is not obesity, but it's tied with obesity, and that is anxiety. Anxiety suppresses your immune system considerably, and those who watched the news and were fearful of COVID were more likely to die from it when they got it uh, as a result of the suppression of the immune system. Uh, hypertension, high cholesterol, other related underlying causes as well. Deaths of despair are the highest ever. We have now had, uh, we haven't had since 1900, um, and before, three years in a row where the longevity of the average American goes down. Now it's four years in a row. But it was going down even pre-COVID because of deaths of despair. What are those deaths? Suicide rates, dramatically increasing. Drug overdoses, dramatically increasing. Opioid deaths, by the way, reached the highest level. We not only had COVID killing people last year, we had opioid deaths also killing more than ever. And also alcohol-related uh, deaths have skyrocketed. In fact, alcohol poisoning, something that you probably wouldn't hear if you turn on any screen elsewhere. You'd have to come to the Michigan camp meeting to learn this. But there are more people, more public school kids killed from alcohol poisoning than school shootings. School shootings produce all the media, but when alcohol poisoning kills a 16 or a 15 or a 14 year old, there's no media coverage or very little, if any. It's almost like, oh well, you know, they should have known better, a poor kid, and nothing is done. And meanwhile, rates of alcoholism and, and addictions are dramatically increasing in our society. Highest rates of mental illness on record. And there's a number of reasons for that, but depression and anxiety levels are very high. In part, they were already increasing. What we have found out is the mental health consequences of the pandemic measures and the fear of the pandemic actually outdid the physical health consequences of the pandemic. And so mental health issues skyrocketed um, with the pandemic. But there are other reasons for it as well. 
And of course, did technology get used more or less during the pandemic? More, and we now know that the usual use of technology is very much related to developing mental illness. In fact, if you use your iPhone and your Android, that we just learned how to use it in a good way, but if we use our iPhone and Android the way most people use it and the way the engineers want you to use it, you will develop mental health issues just as a result of utilizing those devices. And uh, we can explain uh, maybe more about that uh, at a later time. Uh, one of the areas of statistics, I mentioned suicide rates now up 19 years in a row. Even when the economy was great, suicide rates were going up. We had never seen that happen in this country before. When the economy goes down, suicide rates go up. When the economy goes up, suicide rates go down. That didn't happen. With the, one of the greatest economies we had in the last 50 years, pre-pandemic, suicide rates were actually going up. And then when the economy goes down, of course, the suicide rates go up even more. But when we take a look at other measures, for instance, self-mutilation, in 1993, 1% of females under the age of 25 would self-mutilate. In 2000, it went up to 2%. In 2007, it went up to 4%. What do you think it was in 2014? Well, you'd say exponential, probably 8%. No, 26%. And in 2021, it's significantly higher. Over a third of college-age girls and from elementary on up actually will self-mutilate and are self-mutilating. Uh, for males, it's about one in six, one in seven. Uh, this used to be extremely rare. We run residential depression and anxiety recovery programs. We've never had a program where people are not cutting coming to the program. They come with all sorts of scars, sometimes very young, beautiful uh, males and females. And uh, they get in the hydrotherapy tank and we see all of these self-mutilating scars, uh, a sign of their mental uh, illness in regards to their attempt to self-medicate from their emotional uh, pain. The breakdown of the family is the highest on record as well. Uh, more uh, children uh, born out of a, a two-parent biological um, uh, household uh, than ever. And we're seeing a major um, increase in domestic violence and, uh, and also uh, domestic uh, addictions and domestic abuse. Um, you know, it used to be that um, just about a decade ago or more, it was a one in 10 chance that a female would actually be sexually abused by the time they were in adulthood. Now that has gone up to greater than one out of four. For males, it was far less than one out of 10, 10 years ago, and the latest male data shows that it's also one in four. Males are just as likely to be abused sexually as females today with the changes in sexual behavior um, that has occurred. And of course, this produces scars in regards to their uh, future in many different ways. Uh, stealing, also at an all-time high. In fact, you even have mass stealings, lootings, they call them uh, now, and often no consequences. Uh, and then um, we are seeing the fulfilling of prophecy that Christ gave in Matthew 24. It's translated into English, nation shall rise against nation, but the actual Greek is ethnos shall rise against ethnos. It's actually the ethnicities rising against each other, which we're seeing uh, at a uh, fever uh, pitch today. And then when we take a look at American freedoms being eroded, you know, we, we knew eventually American freedoms would be eroded, but we didn't know exactly how it would be eroded. Uh, and uh, freedom of speech is more under attack than ever before. Um, you know, you can be canceled and not have ability to be able to get your speech out there. 
and uh, even canceled for doing things and saying things that are truthful, factual, and scientific. Uh, and so uh, the, the, uh, the ones in, in charge of the communication airways are restricting access to truth uh, on a massive scale. Uh, and, uh, and that's just the beginning of the uh, freedoms uh, that are being eroded and are under attack. Religious freedom is also uh, under attack. Well, many years ago, prior to this crisis, Aristotle stated there are many ways to demonstrate anger and anyone can become angry. That's what? Easy. Obviously, it's easy today. We have more anger than ever before as well. Uh, obviously, anger comes before murder and those sorts of things. And so uh, anger is way up there. But to be angry with the right person and to the right degree and at the right time and for the right purpose and in the right way, that is not within everyone's power and that is not easy. Actually, I don't agree with all of that statement by Aristotle. The last phrase is the one I don't agree with. Once you learn the principles of emotional intelligence, it is within everyone's power to do exactly those things. And this is something that's criti critically important. Christ himself had anger, but he had anger in precisely those ways. Uh, and uh, it, was, it was managed uh, perfectly, and uh, that's part of having and developing a high emotional intelligence. So what are the components of emotional intelligence? The first component is knowing our emotions. That means to be able to not only identify the emotions that you're experiencing, but why you're experiencing those emotions. And if the why is just because someone cut you off in traffic, you're not understanding your emotions. Because that's not the reason why you had the emotions, it's your thoughts about the individual cutting you off in traffic. And so a lot of times people don't understand, they don't have their self-awareness because they're always pointing to the outside in regards to why they're having the emotions that they're having. Some people who come to our program, when they start to get enlightened in regards to this, say, wait a minute. If you're saying it's my thoughts that are causing my emotions, then it sounds like you're blaming me for the way I'm feeling. But you know, thank God it is our thoughts that cause our emotions because we can change our thoughts. And we can change our thoughts into what is accurate and what is also helpful and positive. And so we have to spend a lot of time when people come through our program in regards to the self-awareness, their awareness of the thoughts and the emotional aspect of things. The second aspect of emotional intelligence is managing our emotions. People with low emotional intelligence are managed by their emotions, distinctly different. Those with high emotional intelligence still have powerful emotions, but they're managing those emotions. Then it's not just about us, it's recognizing emotions in others, which is the ability to empathize. Also managing relationships with others. This is why emotional intelligence has been shown to be so much connected to our fulfillment and happiness and success, because a lot of that has to do with relationships, but if you're an emotionally intelligent individual, you are going to have healthy relationships and you'll be able to manage those relationships with others very effectively. And then the final aspect of emotional intelligence is motivation. There are those individuals that have high IQ, but they haven't done well in school. The problem is not their brain, as far as their ability to learn, retain, and apply knowledge, the problem is their motivation, their low emotional intelligence. And we're seeing motivation at an all-time low as well, particularly in kids graduating from high school today uh, versus uh, many years ago. And so uh, if we are not properly motivated, and you know, we might even look at that from a health standpoint. If you have a health issue, 
and you're having problems following the healthiest lifestyle that you should be on, your problem is not your health issue, your problem is in your mind. It's the emotional intelligence part of things. In other words, you're not properly motivated to achieve your goals. And so there's many examples of the challenges in emotional intelligence. And so I'm going to, uh, let's go into some of the influences on emotional intelligence. Our behaviors powerfully influence our emotions. And there are things even in our genetic makeup that can powerfully influence them. When people come to our program, since this is their last stop, they've been to a lot of different places, maybe been hospitalized multiple times, uh, maybe had all sorts of uh, uh, challenges, and then they find out about our program. We leave no stone unturned, so we're even looking at the genetics and looking at their neurotransmitter defects that are maybe a result of the genetics and how we can combat that. The nice thing about it is that genetics loads the gun, but it's actually lifestyle that pulls the trigger, and so we can actually deactivate bad genes once we understand about them in regards to nutrition and other factors, and then measure that that gene is no longer active. Childhood experiences have a role to play. Our current level of emotional support has a role to play. And then there are many physical conditions. If you haven't slept for 48 hours, what happens to your emotional intelligence? Does it go up or go down? It's gonna go down. And poor nutrition will also bring it down. Illness and other physical conditions. But the major influence on emotional intelligence for many people is not these things. Because our emotions are largely controlled by our beliefs, our evaluation of events, the way we think about problems, and our silent self-talk. Those are the moment-by-moment -moment messages we give ourselves. And so we use cognitive behavioral therapy as a method to improve emotional intelligence. There's the ABCs of emotional intelligence. The A is the activating event. And then we have, well, I should back up. Let me back up and go to what traditional uh, psychotherapy tells us. I'm skipping around here in my presentation. And my mouse has decided to quit working. Here it is. So, uh, so A to C thinking is what most people actually subscribe to. They think, since their boss is telling them that they're being laid off, that that's the activating event producing those and leading directly to their sad or mad feelings. C is the emotional consequence. But cognitive theory does not believe that this is the case. It has an influence, the A is mentioned, but the Bible also mentions that this A to C thinking is not quite right. In fact, there's an allusion to this given by David himself. Uh, a to C thinking, as one of the cognitive behavioral therapists that discovered this theory, Dr. Ellis stated, believing that we have little or no ability to influence our feelings and that events and situations directly cause our emotions and behavior is called what type of thinking? Crooked thinking. And interestingly, the psalmist said, if I regard what in my heart? The root word for iniquity is actually bent or crooked. So when we have crooked thoughts, David says the Lord does not hear us. Now it's not because the Lord doesn't want to hear us, but we're actually told in the Bible, you probably haven't heard a sermon on this before, but it is in the Bible, both the Old and New Testament, that God has limitations. God cannot do what? He cannot tell a lie. 
Now he's a free moral agent, I suppose he could if he wanted to, but he puts truth above himself. So in other words, he's not gonna be able to influence us unless we are willing to get rid of our crooked thoughts. If we're willing to get rid of our crooked thoughts, he's there to help us. In fact, Christ told us that he would send us a divine agent to help us with this whole ordeal. What was that divine agent? And the Holy Spirit is called the what? Spirit of truth. He first gives us the truth, and that's how he becomes the comforter. But if I regard iniquity in my heart, if I'm not ready to give up my crooked thoughts, it's not like God's going to be able to help us. So we have to remember the B, the activating event, but then it's our belief that it's actually causing our emotional consequence. Traditional psychotherapy is gonna go into a lot of your A's, your activating events, adverse childhood experiences, all of those things. And cognitive behavioral therapy will acknowledge the A's, but it'll be looking at your present B's. And we can change our present B's into beliefs that are truthful, rational and helpful, and it can make an instantaneous difference in regards to how we're feeling. It's even faster than popping a Xanax pill. So, thoughts and feelings. Your feelings result from the messages you give yourself. Your thoughts have much more to do with how you feel than what is actually happening in your life. Let me give you an example. Paul and Silas. They were taken against their will. They were doing nothing wrong. They were actually helping their community, but they were helping their community so much that the economy was changing. By the way, when we start actually spreading our message the way God intends us to, the economy will start to change. And those who are benefiting from the economy of alcohol and opioids and those sorts of things tend to be tied in pretty closely to politicians, just like they were in Paul and Silas days. And so when their economy was being affected, they started to take Paul and Silas to the authorities, who ended up beating them with rods and then putting them in prison. We're told that it was a pretty torturesome experience. Their feet were put up in stocks, they were laid on an irregular dirt floor, and there they were, crying uncontrollably in prison and saying, why us, Lord? Some of you are familiar with the story. The first part of that story is true. The second part isn't true. What were they doing? They had happy looks on their faces, singing praises to God. Why is that? Because their feelings resulted from the messages they gave themselves, and their thoughts had much more to do with how they were feeling than what was actually happening in their life. Amen. And they weren't thinking fantasy thoughts like they were on a beach in western Michigan. That would have worked for no more than 1.2 seconds. That's called pop psychology. Reality would have set back in they were thinking true and accurate thoughts, and those true and accurate thoughts were so powerful that even under the most adverse circumstances, their emotions could be stable, and they could actually have a happy countenance and be able to influence a large group of people as a result of their emotional intelligence. We're actually going to dissect that story piece by piece before the end of this series, because it's critical if we're going to be making it through the end time, it's critical that we understand every component of that story and how our emotions can be managed under similar situations. So cognitive distortions. This is the problem with emotional, lack of emotional intelligence. What are cognitive distortions? They're habitual errors in thinking that cause people to view reality in inaccurate, usually negative ways. And it can affect anyone, at least on rare occasion. At times, I must admit that I actually believe a cognitive distortion. Fortunately, as was mentioned, the thing I'm most famous for is being married to Erica. 
Um, Erica normally helps me and catches me uh, in that and says, well, you know, is there a more accurate way that we could state that? Uh, and it, it does help, and of course the Holy Spirit can help, your devotional life can help. But the more frequent the thinking error, the greater the problems in relationships, the greater the problems in anger, the greater the problems in bitterness, the greater the problems in acting out, the more depression you're gonna have, the more anxiety, the more addictions, the more mental illness, and more problems with the law. Those with the least thinking errors become the most positive, influential people and the most fulfilled. So this is very important for us to no longer just think negative automatic thoughts. We call them gnats. By the way, do you know what? There's been a study on thoughts 80% of humanities today, at least in America, their thoughts are negative and 95% of them are repetitive. Do you think we have a problem with our thoughts? (laughs) Absolutely we do. And so we need to be able to start analyzing our thoughts, not going into automatic mode and looking for distortions in those thoughts. So I'm going to highlight a particular case out of the Bible today and I'd like you to open your Bible to Jonah chapter one. In fact, I meant to bring my Bible up here and I might have left it in the back. Uh, And uh, I don't know if Erica is here, but uh, I think someone's going there in the back to see if we can find it. If not, if there's an extra Bible, I'll take one. So Jonah uh, chapter one, all right, I've got an extra, someone has an extra one. Thank you very much. Oh wait, I've got here, I don't wanna take it away from you, I just got my Bible from the back there. He, uh, our pastor brother just went and grabbed that. Jonah chapter one. Verse two, Jonah was told to arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, proclaim against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Do you think Jonah understood what God's will was for him after verse two? Yeah, I think he was pretty clear on it. He, had, he, he knew the voice of the Lord because he was a prophet And what he had stated, we can go to another place in scripture if you want to see it, but Jonah was well respected because whatever God told him and he told what God told him, those things had come to pass. So that that was one of the signs of a true prophet. So did Jonah go to Nineveh right away? He went his own way instead of God's way. Why do you think he did that? If we know what should be done, but are not, fear is present. And fear, the Merriam, uh, Merriam-Webster dictionary calls fear painful agitation in the presence of perceived danger. Why did Jonah have fear? (laughs) This was the most wicked city on planet Earth. This would be, you know, uh, we could name some cities in America that would qualify. There's one not too far away from here, across the lake, uh, that uh, is known to be a a wicked city with lots of, of murders in some places there, it's very dangerous uh, to be at. Uh, but uh, this might have even been more wicked uh, than that city and some of these other cities. Jonah very likely had relatives that were killed by the Ninevites. He might have had relatives that were robbed and maimed. He himself might have been robbed and maimed by Ninevites. And so he had fear. And with those things affecting himself or his relatives, and particularly we know that the people of Nineveh 
also had racial issues, particularly the anti-Semitism that was uh, very prominent in Nineveh. Uh, He also would have had fear in regards to his ancestry and his ethnicity. And so Jonah goes the other direction. Verse four, the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship was about to be broken. The mariners were afraid. Every man cried to his God. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. And so when the ship's about ready to be broken up and they're trying to throw things overboard, they find Jonah fast asleep. So this man who was filled with fear at first, now that he was in an isolated and dark place, um, gets uh, maybe some much needed sleep. But the fear is what started this whole thing out, and, and fear can be a powerful motivator, but it can also paralyze. If fear is appropriate, it can be a healthy motivator. Once it gets out of proportion, it can start to paralyze. And particularly when our fear is based on our own guilt, in fact, some people have called fear is the tax that conscience pays to guilt, He wasn't following what the Lord had told him to do. He did have reason to fear. But we're told from the Bible, whom the Lord loveth, he what? He chasteneth. The Lord loved the people of Nineveh. He wanted them to turn around. He also loved the people that Jonah came in contact with while disobeying the Lord on that ship. And the question is, how could Jonah be sleeping with so much noise and turbulence? And the answer we find later on, Jonah thought that he would be better off dead. And being better off dead in some people causes them to want to sleep all the time. And we've had people come through our program that are sleeping 20 hours a day, barely awake long enough to actually survive and eat enough and stay clean enough to survive. And they all have that characteristic when they're sleeping that much, thinking that it would be better if they just didn't wake up. But the Bible says, God hath not given us the spirit of what? Fear. But of power and of love and of a sound mind. God, in in the Bible, 365 times, it says, fear not. I think it's 50 sometimes, it says, do not be afraid. Those are messages that are in the context that when we give ourselves totally to God and are following his will, we don't need to fear. Now, bad things can happen to us, but if they do, they're God's responsibility and he might see that it might be seed for more people to raise up. And that's how martyrs lost their life, even though they were totally committed to the Lord. When there's no more seed that will rise up as a result of martyrs, God will not allow one of his chosen to ever be martyred. There'll come a time when there won't be seed in regards to martyrs, and we're told that'll happen. And so what Jonah should have been fearing was the Lord, but instead he feared the people of that wicked city. And it led him into significant depression. Often depression starts with anxiety, or anxiety can start from depression. But have you ever wanted to isolate yourself and hide in a dark room? Have you ever had insomnia or early morning awakening or wanted to sleep all the time? You know, 90% of people with depression or anxiety actually have some sort of sleep disorder one way or the other. Have you ever had such emotional pain that you no longer cared about your life? If so, then you can relate to Jonah. 
And so, verse 8, they come and say, please tell us about yourself. Who are you? What's your occupation? Where do you come from? And what ethnicity? And so he answers, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Kind of an interesting answer. As he says, tell us about yourself. It's hard to truthfully say we're worshiping the Lord or we're fearing him when we are in open disobedience to him. Jonah may have professed to worship the Lord and he may have done so when things were easier, but now that this was his command, he was no longer in that true worshipful experience in the Lord. And this applies to us as well. You may be reading the Bible, singing songs of praise, attending services, even praying occasionally. You might be saying the right things, but you're not truly worshiping God when you're not allowing him to live in your life and empowering you to follow God's recommendations. Are you following all of God's recommendations that you know of in your life? If you're not, you're not truly worshiping the Lord God and truly fearing and loving him. But this also involves sharing his love to others. He wants each one of us to share his love that we've experienced to others. And if we're not doing that and we're isolating ourselves, that's also a clear sign that we're not in that relationship with the Lord. And we're having, at least to some extent, a Jonah problem. So Jonah... They ask him, what shall we do that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up, throw me into the sea, then the sea will become calm for you, for I know this great tempest is because of me. So Jonah felt helpless because he did not yet understand that God loves him personally and called him because God believed in him. God loves each one in this auditorium personally, and he has called you because he believes in you. But Jonah's understanding, despite the fact he was a prophet of God, was not complete. Jonah has not, as of verse 12, yet experienced God's mercy and forgiveness. Jonah clearly saw the storm as a punishment instead of being sent by a loving God who valued Jonah and did not want him to run away from him. In this state of depression, without faith in a loving God, Jonah becomes what? What was he asking them to do? It was assisted suicide. Emergency rooms are filling with actively suicidal people today with no place to go. The mental health issues are so prominent, if you were to go into just about any ER in the country, I can guarantee you there's someone there who is suicidal that can't get to a psych unit because the psych beds are all filled up. You might be experiencing a tempest in your life It might be in part due to the choices you have made, but God did not send the tempest to punish you. He allowed it to draw you to him to get you back on course. He allowed it not because he's angry at you, but because he what? Because he loves you. And he loves every one of those individuals in ER that can't find a place to go. They have an emotional tempest in their life. But he's not doing that to punish them. He's doing it to try to get them back on course because he values them. And he has a plan and purpose for them and he has a plan and purpose for you. He also has a plan that others be powerfully and positively influenced by you as you let the Spirit empower you, just as he was wanting Jonah 
to do. Jonah had forgotten about Joseph and Job. He knew about them, but in every calamity, did Joseph and Job experience calamities? Yeah, yeah, in many ways worse than Jonah's. But in every calamity, God has a purpose and a plan. Jonah seemed to forget how God accepted Jacob's and Moses and David's repentance. He seemed to think the only way to stop the storm or to stop the emotional pain that he was having was by his death. Did Jonah get his wish? Well, he got his wish, and the men finally did throw him overboard. (laughs) And I'm sure he thought for sure he was going to die. There's evidence, we'll talk about it, that Jonah did not even know how to swim. He wasn't uh, (laughs) raised by water, so he thought for sure it was a certain death in this tempestuous storm. And by the way, those who try to commit suicide in this country, what percent of them actually get their wish? Does anyone know what the percentages are? It's actually only 6% chance. The other 94% end up in those ERs. (laughs) Uh, And uh, they were not successful. They thought they would be, but they weren't successful. And Jonah did not get his wish. And just like it is for most of those today who do not get their wish, their life actually gets worse. They thought it was bad before, but now it's even worse because they're taken against their will and they have exactly what happened to Jonah. They have to be on a three-day and three-night hold. By the way, where do we get the 72-hour hold? It comes from the Bible, and it's in every state in the country. By the way, the Bible and science go hand in hand. That's one of the things that Weimar is very committed to among many, but one is uncompromisingly scientific, no matter how politically incorrect the science and the data is, and unapologetically biblical. And those two actually enhance each other greatly. And many psychiatrists, I've I've actually told them where the 72-hour hold came from. They don't even realize it's right here in Jonah. The suicidal victim who was put on a 72-hour hold. Jonah was upset and very angry. Here he is smelling all of this fish and seaweed and decaying fish and now having stomach acid cover his skin. It was not a good experience and he did not cry out to God at first. It took him three days. But in three days we read Jonah chapter two and he begins to pray to the Lord and he begins to get rational and he begins to come around. And at the end of those three days, he begins to accept God's love and cried out to the Lord. And he recognized that instead of God punishing him, God was actually preserving him in his mercy and love. Like Moses alone in the wilderness, it was when Jonah was alone in the belly of the fish that he really heard God calling out to him in love. And in God's mercy, Jonah was spit out on dry land after that. That's the evidence that he couldn't swim. Because if he could swim, God wanted him to get exercise to help his depression and anxiety, and he would have gotten more by swimming. But he still had to exercise after he was vomited out on dry land. It was a very rural area. Nobody was around there. And he had to walk for many miles and get his steps in and uh, get the sunlight and get uh, the physical factors that would help his brain become balanced. And then, what happened? Do you remember? He now was committed to following God's will for his life and he was filled with God's power in proclaiming his message to the largest, most wicked city on earth. 
What an experience. And to think Jonah was reluctant to go. It would be interesting to see how many powerful experiences God has in store for us when we reject fear and accept God's power and God's love and a sound mind. We would have far more exciting experiences on the positive side of Jonah's experience. The Spirit of God softened the hearts and they truly repented of their sins. Maybe I should repeat the last phrase. The Spirit of God softened the hearts and they truly repented of their sins. All right, I only heard one before. (laughs) This is what can happen to our wicked cities today. And as the city was repenting, Jonah finds a nice overlooking hillside to watch the demolition. I'm sure he was thinking this could be fireworks more impressive than what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. This is a much bigger city. But God accepted Nineveh's repentance and changed his mind as a result of them changing their mind and did not destroy the city. Jonah did not say amen to that. Let's go to chapter 4 and see what Jonah said. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. You know, he should have been the first one to actually rejoice when this had happened. But we're told from the book Patriarchs and Prophets, instead of rejoicing, he allowed his mind to dwell on the possibility of him being regarded as a what? A false prophet, because he said in 40 days it would be destroyed. Jealous of his reputation, he lost sight of the infinitely greater value of the souls in that wretched city. And I think this keeps us away from having the tremendous power God would have us have in our life if the love of God comes with the humility in our life. Are you more interested in credibility and in being right than loving your workmates and those around you? loving them to the point of wanting them to fully repent and turn around. Pride will get in the way. There's a book written by a clinical psychologist by the name of William Backus called What Your Counselor Never Told You, The Seven Sins That Lead to Mental Illness. And he gives you a little test to see whether you might have pride. Trying to be noticed, craving attention, itching for compliments needing to be important, detesting the idea of being submissive, loathing the idea of admitting to wrongdoing, strongly opinionated, being argumentative, demanding your way, wanting control over others, flaunting your individual rights, refusing advice, being critical yet resenting any criticism coming your way, being oversensitive, and finally thinking you have excellences you don't even have. William Backus says if you have one or more than one of those, pride is there. And you are going to have emotional health problems because your pride is going to be wounded. By the way, is narcissism going up or down in our society? It's going up incredibly high. We are developing a generation of people that some of them have all of those attributes. And they don't even recognize they have an issue. Jonah had allowed the pride to get him upset over God's decision to allow Nineveh to continue on because of their repentance. He was magnifying himself. You know, I think of the huge risk God underwent 
in creating talented beings with a frontal lobe and self-will. You know, they could have been happy ever after with the love they have for each other, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That trinity, that triune aspect, self-sacrificing love, they had it all together. Do you think there was risk in creating individuals that have a frontal lobe and have self-will? Tremendous risk, but they, as as loving as they are, they wanted to create creatures who could love voluntarily and experience that voluntary love. And what a risk it was. The magnification of self, where did it start? Did it start with Jonah? It started with Lucifer. I will be like the Most High. He actually thought he was like the Most High in intelligence and all of those things. And it went to a lot of different people that had emotional health issues. Is not this great Babylon which I have built? Who stated that? Did he have emotional health problems? Oh, yes, severe anxiety. He couldn't sleep. All sorts of, he wanted to, he would go into rage, wanted to commit genocide on groups of people. And his pride was so problematic, he was warned about it. But then finally, he had to go to a depression and anxiety recovery program. (laughs) How long was his program? The first thing God did was put him on a plant-based vegetarian diet. (laughs) Then he put him on an exercise program. He couldn't eat unless he exercised. In fact, it was only raw greens for him. That's how severe it was. And then he was given hydrotherapy and, and light and dark therapy, the circadian rhythm. Even music therapy was part of his program when you read about it. And then finally, the cognitive behavioral therapy to get rid of his distorted thoughts. Did the program work? Yes. Nebuchadnezzar became probably the greatest king after that because now he had a humility, a tr- his thoughts were truthful, and he was indeed a great monarch. The creator of the world, we're told, was never elated by applause. Maybe out of all beings, he should have been allowed to have an elevated sense of self, but he not only said the words, he lived the words, blessed are the meek. nor was Christ dejected by censure or disappointment. Those two are connected. If you are never elated by applause, you won't be dejected by censure or disappointment. We're told that amid the greatest opposition and the most cruel treatment, he was still of what? This is where God wants all of us to be able to get to. There's opposition coming. Opposition greater than what Jonah faced. There's going to be cruel treatment, but unless you have emotional intelligence, you are not going to be of good courage when that happens. But Christ, even under the most adverse circumstances, his courage never gave in. So Jonah had this dilemma. Jonah had accepted God's love for him personally, it was clear from chapter two, became outwardly obedient, he actually did what God asked him to do for Nineveh, but he did not accept God's love to the point of being able to forgive and love others who had wronged him. And he developed anger and bitterness. And when God said, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah said, you bet it is. Anger and bitterness are very dangerous feelings to harbor. And bitterness has two paths. It's either going to result in anger, meaning hurtful words or actions, or it's going to result in sadness, where you hold the anger in, leading to sadness, self-pity, and depression. But you have the ability to choose to change another pathway out of these two dark paths for those who have wronged you and those who have been abusing you and those that might have been involved in you suffering from a condition called PTSD. 
I would encourage you to choose to allow God to give you the ability to rise above the wrong that someone else has done, and that is choose to forgive them. Psychologists define forgiveness as a conscious, deliberate decision to release feelings of resentment or vengeance toward a person or group who has harmed you. And this is regardless of whether or not they actually deserve or even ask for your forgiveness. Forgiveness involves letting go of deeply held negative feelings. And when you forgive, you're not stating that the wrong is now right or okay. Some people are reluctant to forgive because they think if I forgive, that means that what I'm, what I'm now saying is that it's okay. No, we don't forgive people for doing right things or neutral things. We forgive them when they do wrong things. Forgiveness does not mean forgetting, nor does it mean condoning or excusing offenses. It takes away the hatred and wishing that pain and misery might be inflicted on the wrongdoer and replaces it with feelings of pity and compassion for the wrongdoer. Forgiveness empowers you to recognize the pain you suffered without letting that pain define you, enabling you to heal and move on with your life. By not forgiving the person or the group that has wronged you, you are still being controlled by them, which is causing you to hold on to anger and resentment. Forgiveness doesn't mean that there are no consequences for the wrongdoer. If they need to have the proper punishment and serve their time or whatever, those types of things need to happen. But it's an acknowledgement that God is bigger and wiser than all that happens in this world, and I choose to let God handle it in his own will and way. It does not release them from guilt or punishment, but it does release you from anger and bitterness. And if we wait for them to apologize, we're actually letting them control us up to that point. And so we need to forgive before they even come or if they never come. Today, I choose not to hold on to feelings of anger and bitterness and resentment forbearing one another, forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Romans says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. God is the righteous judge. Allow him to do it. God will reprove them. He's more powerful than anyone that has hurt us And by giving our frustration and hurt over to God, we ourselves will be healed. And we can have joy and peace of mind that frees us from the destruction of anger. By changing our thoughts into those type of thoughts and true and accurate thoughts, we will actually improve our brain chemistry. Studies show reported levels of happiness are positively correlated and reported levels of sadness negatively correlated with serotonin synthesis in the right anterior cingulate cortex of the frontal lobe. People are taking drugs to try to get more serotonin activity when you can get it by changing your thoughts. Self-induced changes in mood can influence serotonin synthesis. By the way, the drugs do not help serotonin synthesis. They're only preventing the vacuuming back up into the releasing neuron allowing more serotonin in the synapse, but that's gonna produce a long-term problem of not enough serotonin in the neuron uh, where it's not getting back into. The interaction between serotonin synthesis and mood is two ways, with serotonin influencing mood and mood influencing serotonin. One final example of PTSD is the story of Joseph. Joseph was shocked when he was being abused by his brothers. He had no idea the hatred they had. They stripped him, they beat him, they threw him into the pit. They said the worst hateful and angry things to him. And they left him there to die. And then 
They did something that was thought to be even worse than death in those days. They sold him into slavery to get some money off of him. That trauma played like a movie with triggers all the way through Joseph's life. And that's why when he was a free man, because he became free in Potiphar's household, he never went back to his family because he knew he would run into his brothers before he ever ran into his father. And he had that fear and all of those triggers. It's clear he had the triggers as well because certain things would happen even in public and Joseph would come to tears very quickly. Anyone with PTSD has a mental filter and to overcome a mental filter you must intentionally, forcefully look for evidence that supports a different way of thinking. When his brothers came to him and there was no Benjamin, what do you think he thought? They did it to him too. Those scoundrels, they did it to him. But instead of just thinking that, which you would understand that he could think that, he was intentional and forceful to look for evidence to support a different way of thinking about his brother. So he asked about him. He did hear that he was at home. He didn't necessarily believe a word that they said, but he took the meanest skunk of them all, Simeon, and put him in jail and said, you're not getting out until your brothers come back for you and you're not getting food here again if you come back without Benjamin. So to a shock, Benjamin's there. And now he's thinking they're gonna be jealous of him too. So he tries to incite jealousy, can't find it. Then finally puts his cup in there, accuses Benjamin of stealing, tells the rest of them, you're fine, it's only Benjamin that stole. And he's surprised to see all of them come back and he's very shocked to see Judah get down on his hands and knees and said, I'll go to prison for life, you let this boy go. And he realized those brothers had changed. Your abusers, the ones that hatefully and despitefully used you, can change. And when he realized his brothers had changed, he revealed himself to them. And they thought, we better get out of here because we're dead men. We know what we did to him. We know what he's going to think. And he said, yeah, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And please bring my father and come live in a much better place at this point in Egypt. Even the thoughts must be brought into subjection to the will of God and the feelings under the control of reason and religion. Our imagination was not given us to be allowed to run riot and have its own way without any effort at restraint and discipline. If the thoughts are wrong, the feelings will be what? Wrong. And the thoughts and feelings combined make up the moral character. Jonah had magnification, magnification of self, that's one of the cognitive distortions, and he also had a mental filter in regard to the abuse the Ninevites had inflicted on him or his relatives. And it was very important for him to overcome both of those distortions. The Bible says, be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. Now that you can hear your thinking and you've identified your distortions, it's time to reconstruct your thoughts. And we can be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Emotional intelligence, it's very clear. It can be improved upon. And I would like you to review Jonah's experience and compare it with yours. Has there been a storm in your life that's not to punish you, but is just God allowing it to get you back on course. You can get back on course. You can accept God's love and forgiveness. And when you fully fear God, you will lay your own pride in the dust and love the people around you more than what they think of you. And you, if there's anger and bitterness in your life, it's time to enter into God's plan for forgiveness. We don't know how Jonah's story turned out. God is doing cognitive behavioral therapy with him there in the end, trying to get him to see his distorted way of looking at it, dialoguing, helping him to be able to um, uh, self-reflect 
and change his thoughts. And I think, in a way, it ends there because God was interested in you. He doesn't really want us to know how Jonah turns out. He knows what happened to Jonah and whether he accepted God's cognitive behavioral therapy or rejected it. But each one of us are standing as Jonah's today. Are we going to listen to God's recommendations and instructions? Are we going to allow the Holy Spirit in our life to root out the distortions we don't know about? The sin of Laodicea, which is the last day church, is they don't recognize their problems. Are you willing to pray the prayer of David where he said, you know me better than I know myself. Search me, try me, see if there's any distorted way and point it out to me so I can get rid of this distortion and be transformed by the renewing of your mind. God is very interested in us improving our emotional intelligence. That's why we're given all these things like pandemics and and other anger issues and those type of things around us because these are experiences that can help us to develop the emotional intelligence that he wants us to have as we get close to the end time. I will close with the words of Christ himself. Ye shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, I know that there are those here with emotional pain. There are those here with anger. There are those here with bitterness. There are those here who haven't been following your will in health or in other ways. And as a result of seeing your plan more clearly, they're willing to say, God, I want to follow your will and way and not mine. I want you to fill me with the love for those who have wronged me. And I want to forgive them and give that pain and hurt over to you. And I don't want to be having these filters on. I want to be able to see things from their true perspective and rejoice when my abusers turn around and when good happens to them. And so if there are any here today that want to say, God, I'm through with following my will and way. I'm ready to follow yours. Raise your hand and tell God, God, I want to respond to your therapy in my life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 22 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcasts.